Good morning. First off, I want to say happy Mother's Day to all the mothers that are here this morning. If it were not for you, the rest of us literally would not be here. And I want to say a special happy Mother's Day to my mother, who is here visiting this morning. I'm thankful that you can visit with us and grateful for you, certainly. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Our text this morning will be verses 20 through 25, and I'm grateful that Pastor Tim left me such a non-controversial passage of Scripture to expound upon this morning. We are continuing along in the gospel according to Mark, the second half of this fig tree demonstration, starting in verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw a fig tree, the fig tree, withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Let's pray. Lord, we gather together this morning to praise you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for its sufficiency. We thank you for giving it to us, that we may come to it as bread to feed us truth. Lord, help us not to err this morning as we look at your word. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the good news that we have in him, salvation, reconciliation, sanctification. Lord, we come to your word this morning to learn. Please give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we may be continually transformed closer and into the image of Jesus Christ, your Son. It's in his name we ask these things. Amen. Until about a decade ago, there were two large oak trees that sat at the corner of College Street and Magnolia Avenue in Auburn, Alabama. These weren't just any trees. These were trees of tradition. They'd been around for years and years and years, and what is known as Toomer's Corner on Auburn University campus. And the students there, which is a large university, obviously, would go there after a football game, after a win, and they would roll these two trees with toilet paper. And that might seem silly, but it was a tradition. And it was fun. It was like a party. You know, thousands and thousands of students and fans would come and roll these two trees, and it would be like a party. And they'd been there for a long time, even since my father went there to the university 
in, I believe, the late 60s. Is that right, Mom? Late 60s is when Dad graduated from Auburn. So they've been there for a long time. In 2010 was a, was a good year for Auburn. They won the national championship, beating the Alabama Crimson Tide along the way. And this might not mean much to you in Florida, but it's a pretty big deal in Alabama. So let me get to my point. They beat Alabama, and it was the biggest comeback in the history of the Iron Bowl. I'm no huge sports buff, but it was a pretty big deal in Alabama. Around the first of the year, a little after the first of the year, a crazy and loony individual called into a Birmingham radio show, and this made national headlines. You've probably heard of it. His name was Harvey Updike. He recently passed away, but he called in a little loony and crazy letting the listeners know to the sports broadcast that Auburn had cheated their way to the national championship, beating Alabama along the way, and he went to Auburn and poisoned the trees with herbicide. And I went to visit these trees several months after he poisoned them, and scientists and tree huggers and whatnot had been in the ground trying to save these trees, but they were going to die. But several months later, there were still leaves on the trees, and they still had some sign of life. Why is that? Because we all know that trees do not die overnight. Their roots go deep. I don't know much about trees, but I'm sure that trees of that size probably hold a lot of water. And so we don't see trees die overnight unless something strange is going on, unless something miraculous is going on, because it's just not normal. This morning in Jesus' miracle of destruction regarding the fig tree, we're going to see something very different. We're going to see the power of Jesus Christ and his control over nature as he curses this fig tree as a continued sign and an acted-out parable, as Tim talked about last week in part one, over this tree as a picture of both Israel and then also to us as we think about the church and judgment and fruit and faith. So I would ask that you would pay attention this morning because this is very important. Let's start in verse 20. I'm just going to jump right in. As they passed by in the morning, they saw a fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Let's examine these first two verses that I have labeled the context. First of all, in the morning. What morning is this? Well, it's the next morning after Jesus cursed with his words the fig tree. One thing that you have to remember up until this point in the gospel according to Mark, we have been looking through verses 1 through about 9 or so at large swaths of Jesus' ministry over three years. He's been traveling, teaching. He has a healing ministry. There's been large crowds building up over time, but it's been a three-year process. Now that we move into the Passion Week as Jesus enters Jerusalem, over the next few months, as we traverse through these passages, everything is happening back to back to back. This is Tuesday or Wednesday of Passion Week, and our Lord will be crucified within 48 to 72 hours. 
He has come into Jerusalem as a king. Maybe not a literal king, but a king who is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. If you think back to the last few weeks, the focus has been on his kingship. Just a couple of weeks ago, what happened? Blind Bartimaeus yelled out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Fulfilling First and Second Samuel, the life of David, that there would come a son who would sit on the throne perpetually. He entered into Jerusalem at the triumphal entry with those people yelling out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, taking their cloaks, taking their robes, and putting them on the ground, rolling them out, as you will, as a carpet for a coming king. But he didn't come to do everything that the leaders and the Jewish people thought that he was going to do. He rolled into Jerusalem. He didn't overthrow the Roman government. He didn't overthrow the authorities. He overthrew tables. He went into the temple, and he cleared it, just as Tim talked about last week. And on the way, he saw this fig tree. He came hungry. He was looking for both literal fruit, but also spiritual fruit, and he found none. He's coming into the epicenter of religious life at the Passover, likely hundreds of thousands of people coming to Jerusalem looking for fruit and found none. There was none to be found. And Peter said, Rabbi, look, the next day the fig tree that you cursed has withered. First of all, notice the surprise here from Peter. And I've asked myself over the last couple of weeks, what is he surprised about? Is he surprised that the tree withered, first of all? Is he surprised at how fast the tree withered? As we just talked about, trees don't normally just wither overnight. It takes a lot of time. Or is he surprised that this is the first miracle of destruction that he's seen, or at least that's recorded for us in the Gospels? I don't know, probably maybe a little bit of all of the above. This is unnatural. This is Jack and the Beanstalk type stuff where a child throws magic beans out into the yard and wakes up the next morning and there's a large beanstalk going into the heavens. This is fairy tale type stuff if the power of God was not behind it. Matthew says that it died instantly. They didn't notice it until the next day, but it withered from the roots, from the control system. And this is not a frivolous act of anger, as Tim mentioned last week. This is a picture. Mark lays it out as such before and after, like a sandwich around the temple and the cleansing of the temple. Why did he curse the tree? It's because the tree was barren. Let's look quickly at Luke 13, at Jesus' parable there. We read this last week, but just as a reminder, Luke 13, starting in verse 6. The parable of the barren fig tree. And he told this parable, A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree. 
and I find none, cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Using up valuable resources, valuable nutrients in the ground. And Jesus now is not just telling a parable, but he's showing his disciples a parable, a picture. He cursed it because it was barren. Let's stop here for just a second and interject the summary from last week. I think that it is a helpful quote to transition us into this next section of application. This is from a well-known commentator, William Hendrickson, and he writes on these verses, in cursing the fig tree, it should be up on the screen, in cursing the fig tree and cleansing the temple, Jesus performed two symbolic acts with one meaning. He was predicting the downfall of unfruitful Israel, not that he was through with the Jews, which we talked about last week, but that in place of Israel, an international and everlasting kingdom would be established. A nation bringing forth not just leaves, but fruits, and gathered from both Jews and Gentiles. Remember here, Jesus is teaching his disciples, his apostles, who will go on and plant the New Testament church and be the foundation of what will come as spiritual descendants of Abraham. So that's the context. Next, let's move into this section that I've entitled A Puzzling Application. And as you look at your sermon notes, the title of today's sermon is Faith, Prayer, and Forgiveness, A Puzzling Application. But there really should be a question mark there. Um, A Puzzling Application? As we think through this, because this has gotten a lot of people in hot water over the last hundred years interpreting these verses, but we're trying to take it in context here. This can be confusing. Jesus replies in this immediate context, have faith in God. This is a seemingly anticlimactic response. It seems like more of the same. Jesus had certainly said this before. This is like a child in Sunday school just saying the answer is Jesus or God. Yes, certainly have faith in God. How in the world do we get from verses 21 to 22? It can be difficult. What is the connection? And this morning, I'm going to argue that the connection is fruit. In the context, this is a response to the fig tree and the temple. Jesus says, have faith. An imperative to the disciples, commanding them, have faith. Echo in the Greek, hold or possess. What are they supposed to hold or possess? Faith meaning belief or trust. Essentially, Jesus is saying, trust. Don't doubt. Trust. What would happen if we stopped right there? Faith and trust is absolutely nothing on its own. We cannot have faith in faith. This is absurd. This is logically incorrect. We hear this all the time. I'm a man of faith. I am a woman of faith, specifically in the political season when politics want to get the Bible Belt voters on their side. They say, I'm a man of faith. Well, what does that mean exactly? You can't have faith in faith. Then it means whatever you want it to mean. It means faith in yourself, faith in X. Just put something in the box, and it can be whatever you want it to mean. 
The tree is a ripe picture, all puns intended, of ceremonially focused, legalistic, and self-centered religion. Remember back to Mark 7 in the context of Mark. What happens? What do the Pharisees say? They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They have a faith in themselves. That was back before Jesus went into Jerusalem, and now he's coming into the center and finding no faith, no fruit. Evil men who are out for their own financial gain. I taught at a survival school before I came here for four years um, in the military, and the context was those that have a high, those students that have a high chance of going overseas and becoming in a survival situation where they're cut off from friendly lines, or maybe they get picked up in their POWs or hostage situation. And one of the things that we teach them as part of the curriculum is keep the faith. It's like a motto or a slogan, keep the faith. And I actually look back at that time in my life, and I'm very proud of the work that I was doing there. I think that it was good. There's certainly something noble and admirable about talking to service members who are going overseas and telling them, keep the faith. And essentially what we were saying is, keep the faith in your country. They're going to come and look for you. They're going to come and find you. Uh, Keep the faith with your brothers and sisters in arms so that you can get back here together. You know, that's essentially what it means. But ultimately, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to the long game, that's going to run out of fuel very quick. It might give you a moral boost to be able to help yourself for a little while, but really all you're doing is mustering up your own strength. There's nothing lasting in that. Keep the faith. Well, what should our faith be in? The object of faith is God. That's why Jesus answers, have faith in God. God gives faith its significance. As Christians, our faith is rooted in the character of God, His goodness as creator, as sustainer, as redeemer. Your faith and your prayers have no power in and of themselves when they're not rooted in God. They're like an anvil falling to the ground. There was a French tailor by the name of Franz Reichelt. You might know who this gentleman is. He died in 1912. I would like to say he's one of the early inventors of the parachute, but it failed miserably. He tailored a suit that was supposed to canopy out if he jumped off of a a building or jumped off of a cliff or whatever it may be. In 1912, he got authorization from the governing body there in Paris to do a test off the Eiffel Tower. This is the early days of cinematography, and this was all caught on camera, and it's very sad. Um, But he went saying that he was going to use a dummy, but he put faith in himself and his work, and you can imagine what happened. He jumped off the Eiffel Tower and he, his imprint went into the cement, died. That's what our faith is like if we don't entrust it in an almighty and all-powerful God. This is fruit that we're describing here. Faith in God. Moving along, truly I say to you, verses 23, whoever says to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes in what he says 
will come to pass. It will be done for him. Something I think is very helpful for these next couple of passages here is uh, Alistair Begg, obviously a famous pastor, and preaching on this. He said, this is a breeding ground for irrelevant questions and implausible answers. And I can't think of a better way to describe these verses than that. A breeding ground for irrelevant questions and implausible answers. Because this is seemingly outrageous. First of all, Jesus says, truly. So this is true. You can bank on this. An interesting term to use considering the claims that follow, right? Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. So we have to ask ourselves here, there's obviously much truth in this statement, but is our Lord talking in literal language? Is he talking in figurative, parabolic language? Because this is something that someone would probably get tattooed to their body or you would see on a greeting card, and the purpose of it would be that I can have this strength to be able to throw a mountain into the sea. But let's ask ourselves in the context, just turn back one page to Mark chapter 10 briefly. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 23, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Figurative parabolic language used there. Let's move back to chapter 9, just probably back another page, starting in verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown in hell. All true statements. But we don't see the disciples and the apostles walking around without arms and without legs. What's happening is Jesus is saying, cut off the sin. Stop it where it's at. Those are just two examples in the last couple of chapters. Jesus often spoke in figurative parabolic language and taught in parables. Now, I'm not going to say that there's not a literal sense to this passage. Certainly, Jesus has the power. The creator of heaven and earth who speaks power by his word can pick up a mountain and throw it into the sea. And certainly, he can teach his disciples that they will do great and powerful things but there was no mountain-throwing training after this, certainly. When we think of Star Wars, and all you Star Wars geeks are going to get on to me for getting this wrong, when Luke flies in his X-wing fighter, right, into the, into the swamp, into the bog, that's 
essentially what's happening is Yoda is saying, you know, be one with yourself, be one with the force, and you can lift this thing out. That's not what's going on here. Those are irrelevant questions to what's happening. People will use this scripture against you to say that the New Testament is clearly wrong. I've never seen anyone throw a mountain into the sea. Jesus is traveling with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. There's certainly a couple of possibilities. They're on the mountain, so he's using that as an example. Also to the south and to the east, there's the Herodium, which Herod the Great years before had built a fortress up on a hill and used slave labor to move the land from one hill to the other, talking to his disciples and saying, you, my men, my guys who are going to go out and build my church are going to do greater things than this. The Dead Sea could be seen in the distance. Those are possibilities. We don't know for sure. We weren't there. But the point here is the nature of faith. And the nature of faith should be confidence, and confidence in the power of God as we are united to Him. James 1.6. You don't have to turn there, but James 1.5 and 6. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. The purpose, the point here is the nature of faith, and that is confident power in the faith that we should have while we put our faith in God. At the same time, I don't want to diminish this power. I don't want to diminish the power of God, even though clearly using parabolic figurative language here, we know that all power resides in God, and that He does great things through those who put their trust in Him. Jesus illustrates power of faith by hyperbole about the moving of a mountain, and we see this power being transferred to the disciples as they move into the book of Acts. We see Peter saying to the lame man, I don't have any money, but get up and walk. In the name of Jesus Christ. God can do things that are incredible and that appear impossible. This is the point of the passage. This is what's going on here. This is the fruit and the mark of the people of God. Believe in God and He can do the impossible through you. There are many examples of this in Scripture. There's Lots of places that we can go and we can look. We can look at Gideon. We can look at David. We can look at Joshua. Um, But Abraham is probably the best candidate. Let's turn just quickly to Genesis chapter 15 and 17. The man of faith. We are spiritual descendants of Abraham, our father in the faith. Chapter 15, we know this well. God's covenant with Abraham, and he brought him outside. Verse number 5. Genesis 15, and he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. This is the Lord talking to Abraham. And he believed the Lord and counted to him, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Look over at chapter 17. Isaac's birth promised, 
Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? This is the impossible, except for God. If it was not for God, this would be impossible. Believe in God, and He can do the impossible through you. Paul expounds upon this in Romans 4, which I think is incredibly helpful. Romans 4, expounding on this covenant with Abraham, starting in verse 18, Paul says, In hope, speaking of Abraham, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in the faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Back in Mark, verse 24, as we move on to prayer, it really flows out of this idea of faith in God. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer... Believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. We cannot rip this out of the context of faith in God. Therefore, this is a continuing statement, a continuing idea. Our faith is rooted in the character of God, and that's who we pray to. So how does this affect our prayer life? We don't throw our prayers up into the air like we would throw dice and pray and hope that they land on lucky number seven. We have a confidence in our prayers because they're rooted in our God. When Jesus teaches us to pray, what does he say? He says, not my will, or says, your will be done, your kingdom come, in Matthew chapter 6. It's sometimes hard for people when they see this, whatever you ask. I think of, and I'm sure that everyone has thought about what they would do if they would win the lottery. A lot of people say, oh, I'd just be humble and I wouldn't actually spend much money. I wouldn't, I'd give some to over here. I know myself, and I know the reason that I don't have a lot is because the Lord knows how I would use it. I, I can think of a lot. I can imagine a lot. So when we talk about here, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. Very interesting, Right? The Lord does know how to give good gifts to his children. We see that in Matthew 7, just as we want to give good gifts to our children. But he knows the right gifts to give. James 4, back in James, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. And here's the key, to spend it on your own passions. So the motive, the root the motive behind prayer is wrong when you do that. And that's not the type of prayer that Jesus is expounding upon, that he's teaching his disciples here. 
We know that it's wrong because God doesn't always answer every prayer. We're going to see this in a few weeks with Jesus, our Lord, in the garden. What does he say? Everything is possible for you, Lord, but not my will, but yours be done. Notice that Jesus is completely confident, but at the same time, he's completely surrendered to the will of his Father. Now, to get into a a little bit of a controversial side of this, just because I think that we need to address it, let me ask you this question. Have you ever been told the reason God has not answered your prayer in the way that you have asked is because of your lack of faith? The reason your, and this, this, is, this is sad, the reason that your family member died, the reason that your family member has not come to Christ, the reason that you don't have what it is that you want is because of your lack of faith. This is the name it and claim it gospel that we hear of individuals taking this and using it. And what's happening here is they're in alignment with Satan when they say this kind of thing. They're skewing the Word of God just as Satan has skewed the Word of God from the beginning in the garden, just as he skewed the Word of God in his temptation to Christ. This is absolute horse manure, and I would use stronger words, but Tim might not allow me to come back and preach. The temple, as we saw last week, was to be a house of prayer for all nations, Isaiah 56. But those in the temple were worried about their own financial gain. They were a den of thieves, not praying in alignment and in the will of God. This is prayer that is in the will of God, that understands His purpose. A believer can rest in God's goodness, that their prayers will be answered. And I want you to listen closely here for a minute because this seems so abstract until we root it in a good biblical example. And something good to to root this in is forgiveness. Pray for forgiveness that you will have it. The Bible tells us to do this. If you confess your sin, God is faithful to forgive. 1 John 1, 9. He will do it. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. An additional fruit of faith is prayer. They work hand in hand. Faith believes enough to ask. If you are not asking, what is that saying about your faith? And what does that say about your view of God and His power? The Lord knows the good things that we need, forgiveness, salvation, those things that are eternal. And we can know confidently that we have them. Think of of John. Think of the whole purpose of the gospel of John. Those of you who have been here for a while, when we think back, not many of you likely, but what's the whole purpose and the thesis of the gospel of John that you may know? These things are written so that you may know. And John expounds upon this in his epistle. Turn there quickly. You probably know this. Some of you might have it memorized. To John, 1 John 5. It's in the back of your Bible. It's close to Revelation. 
1 John 5, starting in verse 13, write these things, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know, and if we know that he hears us, in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. That's a great scripture verse for many of you to memorize who are struggling with their faith. In John 15, Jesus is the vine. He says, whatever you ask in my name, whatever we ask in God's will, in Jesus' will, in alignment with him, we can know that we will have those things. First fair faith, then prayer. Let's move quickly to forgiveness. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. You do not have good fruit if you are unwilling to forgive others. And I could take the time to expound upon this, but I'm not going to because Jesus does it so well. So we're going to return quickly to Matthew 18. Turn there and read with me Matthew 18. I'm going to let the master do this. The parable of the unforgiving servant. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, which is Greek for a lot of times. Take a couple of you a minute, a minute there. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle one, was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children. And all that he had and payments were to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant raised him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a measly hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all the debt. So also, 
my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You will not have effective prayer until you learn to forgive, until you forgive others. We as Christians should know more than anything. We cannot accept the forgiveness of God and then be unforgiving to our brothers and sisters who seek reconciliation. Why is this? Because we have crawled on our knees to the Lord asking for forgiveness for far greater evil that we have done than our petty squabbles with our brothers and sisters in Christ. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and then outflowing of that is love others as yourself. This is the fruit that we see that Jesus came into Jerusalem looking for, and he would save a people for himself of both Jews and Gentiles as they went forth. The church, that we stand in alignment with that today. We are professing Christians. Do we have this fruit? These elements, faith, prayer, and forgiveness, are the outflowing application of Jesus' cursing the fig tree. As Christians, we cannot be a fruitless tree that merely has pretty leaves. I have a couple of reflective applications for you and then an encouraging application. First, we need to ask ourselves, is this fruitless tree a picture of me? Am I represented by this tree? Does Jesus find faith, prayer, and forgiveness in me? Let's examine our hearts as we think about this. Another reflective point of application is be weary of judgment. Romans 11, which Tim expounded on last week, says that Israel, the Jews, were broken off because of their unbelief, their lack of faith. So if we do not have faith, how much more will we be broken off? Be concerned with judgment. Another point of reflective application, are our prayers sincere? Are they humbled? And are they in line with the will of God? Lastly, an encouraging point of application. Our faith must be rooted in God. And it is good news that salvific faith is not rooted in our own power. Otherwise, we would be like the empty and fruitless temple traders. Additionally, this is great as well. Even a little faith is good, as long as it's faith in God. Our faith certainly grows over time, but even a small seed of faith, if it is in the Almighty God, is enough, and fruit will bloom from that. We learn this lesson over and over through Scripture. It is what our faith is in that matters, in God, in the good news He has delivered to us through His Son, Jesus. Faith in life, faith in his life, faith in his death, faith in his burial, resurrection, and his ascension. And he's coming again.
Let us be a people that bear fruit for his glory until our king comes and we celebrate the harvest together. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray that we are transformed by it. I pray that we looked at it rightly this morning, that we put it up on the pedestal that it deserves. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for this teaching that he has given us. These essential fruits that we should bear as your people, as your called people. Let us be a people who put our faith in you. Let us be a people who prayer, in confident prayer, praying in your will flows from our faith. Let us be a people who love others, are marked by these fruits. As we continue to proclaim the name of Jesus until he returns. Be with us now as we leave this place. Let us be a people who are zealous for you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.